started reading once again from John chapter 13, beginning at verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you are also to love one another. By this shall all people, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, we are indeed thankful for the opportunity once again to come gather together as you've commanded us to do in your church and to worship you to sing praises to your name, to offer prayers to you, to give, to fellowship, to encourage one another, and to have the Word of God minister to our hearts. And we pray, Lord, this morning that that would happen, that your people would be encouraged by the Word and then would want to encourage each other. We pray your blessings, save the lost, revive your people. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Thank you. Be seated, please. Well, it's good to see each of you here this morning, and uh, we've had... It felt just like a spring morning this morning, didn't it? And certainly that's uncommon for this time of year, but we're thankful for a little, a little respite from the cold that we've had through this uh, winter. Uh, I, do, uh, I do feel for those who live off of the snow, uh, and we pray that God will meet your needs too. Well, we continue here in our study of John's Gospel. We have been looking at chapter 13 for several weeks now, and it's amazing how much comes out of these passages. And and yet, if we were to wait and do this again, we would find other things in these passages. So I try to give you as much as I find in them and... Uh, so, so that you can have enough at least to chew on uh, for the week that you go away from here. So we come here this week to verse 30, 31 through 35 in our study. To the time ending the Lord's Supper, which, in which our Lord established what we commonly call communion. Or the Lord's Supper. This is the last time that he ate with his disciples. And he said that he would not drink of the cup, that last cup of the supper, until he drinks it anew with his disciples in his kingdom. It is a, it, this supper was a harrowing time, to say the least, for the disciples who have just learned that they had a traitor in their midst. And for the Lord, it was a deeply troublesome time over Judas, who he knew all along would betray him, and yet that did not lessen the pain of Judas' betrayal and desertion. Judas had sold himself as a pawn to Satan. 
Now after the dinner was nearly over and Judas had left the room, Jesus had many things to say and to teach those who were his true disciples before he suffered. The main thing that he imparts to them through this whole course of chapter, the end of chapter 13, all the way through chapter 19, is that he wants to teach them those truths that would most identify them as followers of Christ and that would see them through their lives as believers. So how do people identify with Jesus Christ? Well, we, we studied a little bit about that in our, in our families and training time this morning at 9 o'clock. And, and so this sort of dovetails with what Sinclair Ferguson taught there from Philippians chapter 3. <clears throat> but uh, I, I went back in my mind uh, during this time when I... To my early years of being a Christian, just within a year or so after I was saved back in 1971, and I wanted people to know that I was a Christian. I didn't want there to be any doubt, and so I I thought of ways that I could uh, spark conversation that would bring that up. And so I I wore this little green badge. You've seen these buttons that sometimes people make so big around, you pin them to your coat or your shirt or your jacket or whatever. I had a green button that had listed on it these letters. P-B-P-W-M-G-I-N-F-W-M-Y. <laughs> that says nothing. It's not a word. <clears throat> but people would see that button... And they would say, what's that? And I would say this to them. Please be patient with me. God is not finished with me yet. That's what it stood for. And that would spark up a conversation about God in my life, that I was a Christian, and so on and so forth. And so I was coming out of the, the dental clinic on the base. I was in the Air Force, and so I was coming out of the dental clinic. I just had my wisdom teeth out, and Mary was with me, and I had these two big gauze piece rolls sticking out of my mouth. And uh, I grabbed my coat, and I put it on, and I had that button there on the coat. And I walked out into the waiting room, and this guy says to me, Hey, what does that mean? I couldn't speak a word, so I just went. I wanted people to know that I was a Christian. And people identify as Christians in many ways. Some will announce it with speech. Others will have lapel pins. Some will have jewelry. Some even put bumper stickers on their cars or Christian words or logos on their t-shirts. And though these things are visible ways of saying I'm a Christian, they are all external. And they all are superficial in a sense and outward. Being a Christian is not simply external. Being a Christian is inward. It's a a thing of the heart, of the soul of the individual. That's where the real, visible outworkings come from. Anybody can say words. Anybody can wear t-shirts. Anybody can have lapel pins or buttons. But what is really in the heart is what matters. The scriptures teach this 
over and over again. Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. If you confess with your mouth the Lord that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified. And with the mouth one makes confession and is saved. It's a thing of the heart. Romans chapter 2 verse 29. A Jew is one out inwardly and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit. Acts chapter 15. Verses 8 and 9. God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them His Holy Spirit. This is when Peter was, went to Cornelius and now he's come back to Jerusalem. He's reporting to the other apostles how that God has given salvation to the Gentiles. And so he says this, that they, we bore witness to them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as He did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Is that where your, is that where your religion comes from? Does it come from your heart? I know that there are many, many thousands of people who go through the motions of playing like they're Christians and they're really not in their hearts. The greatest way to tell the world that you are a Christian is to do it as Jesus commanded it to be done. That is to love one another. But before we get into that part of the passage... Let's go back and pick up the other verses that are prior to that because they lead up to this last uh, command that Jesus gave in verse 34 and 35. Notice that he says, now you have to, you have to visualize that the, the, the scene there in the room uh, where the dinner's taking place, Judas has been exposed. By this time, they all, they all now know that Judas is gone and he's, he's, he's the betrayer. Jesus has, has much greater freedom now to teach his disciples and prepare them for the life that is going to be theirs in the power of the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit is given to them. The disclosure of these truths given to the eleven are the most intimate of all that Jesus has previously taught to them. Mark chapter 4 and chapter 9 tells how Jesus kept these teachings for his disciples only. And that brings up a good question by a lot of people. Because people will say, so I should invite my unsaved uh, friends to come to church with me and so they can hear the gospel and so on and so on. And there's nothing wrong with that. But I'll say it again, and I've said it many times over the years that I've been here, church is not for the unbeliever. Church is for the believer, the one who's been redeemed by Christ. Now certainly we're happy when people come you bring friends that are unsaved or whatever, they're not believing and they hear the gospel in the message. That's, we, we welcome that at any time. But I just want you to understand that what we do here is for those who know Christ and love Him and follow Him and want to know Him more in their lives. That's what church is for. The gospel preached to people should be done out there, outside, where you live, where you work, where you play, walking down your street in your neighborhood, inviting people over. They will soon see that you are a Christian. Now notice in verse 31, Jesus 
verses 31 and 32, Jesus speaks of the glory that is going to be given to God in the fact that he is going to suffer and die on the cross at Golgotha. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. The term, the title, Son of Man, is is a title used of the Messiah in the Old Testament prophets. Give you one example. There are many. Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that would be the Father, and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and all the peoples and nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that will not be Destroyed. That's the Lord Jesus Christ receiving the kingdom from his Father, the Son of Man. The Jews knew this phrase. They all knew who the Son of Man would be. And Jesus is, has, has taken that title and applied it to himself throughout the Gospels, throughout the time that he was on earth and in his public ministry. And though he was the son of Abraham and the son of David in his humanity, he was always the son of God first and foremost. He was the eternal son before the creation in eternity past. He's always been the son of God. And he always will be. Now in saying he is glorified, He is referring to his death on the cross, which will come very shortly the next day. His sacrificial death would be one that would glorify the Father, but also glorify the Son for for fulfilling the work that the Father had given him to accomplish. On the day after Pentecost, Peter was walking, and and the other couple of other disciples with him was walking through the temple portico. He saw a man that was lame. The man was begging for money. And Peter said to him, I don't have any silver or gold to give you, but what I do have I will give to you. Take up your bed and walk. And the man rose up, and a crowd began to gather. And this is what Peter said. The God of Abraham and I and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. What an, what an awesome occasion to preach the gospel to these people who had sent Jesus to the cross. Now I want you to notice in the passage, in verses 31 and 32, that the word glorify or glorified is used five different times. You think God is trying to say something about himself? One of the biblical rules of interpretation is that if God says something more than once, pay close attention to it. Well, he said it five times here in these two verses. That's why we're here this morning. We're not here for ourselves, although we receive benefits from from worshiping God. We're here for Him. We're here to glorify Christ. We're here to glorify God. That's why we come. Never lose that. Because if you do, you've lost the main plot of why why we come and do what we do here. Now, 
God is certainly worthy of our glory, of glory that we give in worship. And all that Jesus accomplished in his life and death was glory for the Father. And the glory of the Father is found in Jesus. God has glorified Jesus and Jesus has glorified God. So we have to ask the question, how does Jesus' death on the cross glorify God? How does it do that? It does that in three different ways that I would suggest. Number one, Jesus' death on the cross purchased eternal salvation for all those who would in time believe. We, relate, we refer to them as God's elect. Over time, the gospel is preached and God's elect will hear that gospel and God will regenerate them to life and they will come to Christ for salvation. Every believer in Christ is a glory to God the Father. You ever thought about yourself that way? You know Christ. You love Christ. He is your Lord. You're following Him. You're seeking to be obedient to Him and live a holy and righteous life before Him. You are a glory to the Father. You don't receive the glory, but He does. God is glorified in those that He saves because His justice against sin has been satisfied in the death of Christ on their behalf. God gave Christ on my behalf. Sinners, by definition, have broken God's law and God's justice demands that He judge them with eternal punishment. For their crime is an infinite crime. There must be an infinite punishment. Christ Christ took their sins upon Himself on the cross and by doing so provided judicial pardon for their trespasses. So God can now look at you in Christ. He can look at you and say, I find you not guilty. Can you imagine the relief of a prisoner sitting in a courtroom being tried for a capital crime, hearing the words that come from the jury and from the judge saying, you're not guilty. You're free to go. That's you. That's me in Christ. Now, if you're here and you're not in Christ, you're not a believer, that doesn't apply to you. You are guilty. You will be sentenced. But you don't have to be. You can come to Christ right now where you sit. You can fall on His mercy. You can plead for His grace. You can trust Him as the one to forgive your sins. And He'll forgive you. And you will be not guilty. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. In Colossians chapter 2, he says, You were dead in your trespasses. In the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with Christ, forgiving you of all your trespasses. It's only through the death and sacrifice of Christ, the Son of God, that God could be both just in His 
in his absolute necessity of condemning sin and judging sin, he can also be justifier because Christ was took that sin upon himself. And God was satisfied. His justice was satisfied in the death of Christ. And that brings glory to God. Second, Jesus' death also destroyed the power of sin. Now when it says he destroyed the power of sin, it means that he destroyed sin's power to dominate you. You see, before you were a believer, all you could do was sin. It's all you could do. You didn't know any different. You didn't want any different. You were perfectly happy in your sin. Even though many times people are miserable, they still pursue the one thing that they can pursue, and that's sin. But Christ's death destroyed the power of sin's domination. And it overthrew, it overthrew sin in the lives of those who belong to Christ. It no longer ha- it becomes your master. You don't have to obey its commands. You can say no. Where before you couldn't. And you didn't know any different. I didn't know any different. Before I was a believer. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned it. We know that our old self was crucified with him. In order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. So that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And lastly, Jesus' death on the cross sealed Satan's doom and destroyed his power. Now, this is an interesting thing because we all know, those of us who have studied the Bible to any length, all know that Satan is a very powerful uh, angel. We would call him the prince of demons, the prince of darkness. Uh, he's called by many names. But when Jesus went to the cross, it sealed Satan's doom and it destroyed his power. Now, I want you to think about this. What was Satan's power over people? It wasn't just that he it wasn't just that he tempted them to do wrong things. Although he is at work doing that. Because we can be tempted without the devil. He doesn't have to even play a part in it. Satan's, Satan held in his grip the power of death in all of its forms, both physical and spiritual. He used death like a weapon against humanity. Now Satan understood that God required death as a result of man's sin. That was, the, that was the wages that man earned by sinning in the garden. Death. In the day that you eat of this tree, you will surely die. Well, Adam ate of that fruit, whatever it was. He ate of it. And he did not die physically immediately. He lived a a very long life. But he did die instantaneously spiritually. He died that day. Satan understood that. That's why why he, he got Eve to coax Adam into eating the fruit. And he knew if people died in their fallen state... That they would remain in that in death forever away from God's glory and God's presence. So for Satan to remain in possession of this terrible weapon 
that would rob God of His glory to defeat Satan. A weapon, now listen, a weapon is only as good if it's, it's only good if it's more powerful than your enemy's weapon. You have to have a bigger weapon than they do. Otherwise, your weapon won't count for anything. So what was God's weapon against Satan's weapon of death? God's weapon is life. It's a bigger weapon than Satan had. It's a more powerful weapon than Satan had. And so God's weapon was to destroy death. And that weapon resided, that weapon of God resided in the life and death of Jesus Christ, His Son. So, so Satan no longer wields this, his great power of death over humanity. Because Christ has conquered it with his weapon of life. And so, how does he do that? Jesus went into death on the cross. He went through death and came out the other side of it alive. That's why the resurrection is so important to the gospel. It is the capstone of the gospel message. That Jesus didn't just die like like, uh, other religious leaders died. He died sacrificially, but he rose again to life. And he tells his disciples, I'm alive forevermore. Death no longer has a hold on him. And because he's alive, we're alive. Listen to what he says, John 14, verse 19. Yet a little while the world will see me no more. (coughs) But you will see me because I live, you will also live. Future tense. In other words, I have life residing in me and you're going to have that life residing in you forever. That's what he means. And so Christ is glorified, but the Father is also glorified in the Son's death and accomplishments on the cross. In John 10, verse 30, Jesus said, I and the Father are one. We're one. So what happens to the Father happens to Christ, and what happens to Christ happens to the Father. Jesus received His words from the Father. Jesus gives back everything that the Father tells Him to the Father. So they're they're one. They cannot be separated So close are they that they are considered as one individual. So if the Son is glorified, then the Father is glorified. And that's an amazing parallel. That the Son and the Father are both at work in the the work of redemption that Christ made for sinners on the cross. They're both involved. The oneness of the Father and the Son is explained further in verse 32. Where Christ revealed the Father's glory through the cross and displayed displayed God's power, justice, holiness, and faithfulness to His promises. But more than anything else, Christ's death on the cross... Revealed God's love for lost sinners. The cross is the most powerful demonstration of love in the universe. With all of its terror, with all of its ugliness, with all of its pain and suffering, with all of its humiliation, it is the greatest love letter. Written to humanity. William Hendrickson writes, 
Whenever we think of, the, of Christ's sufferings, we never know what to admire most, whether, whether it be the voluntary self-surrender of the Son to such a death to such a, of such a death to such a people like us, or the willingness of the Father to give up such a son to such a death to such a people. I think we admire both of them. We admire Christ for going to the cross for us, but we admire the Father for giving Christ to go to the cross for us. Now, before we go further, I want to and get into verse these latter verses. I want you to see those words at once. So it sounds like it's going to happen immediately. And sometimes the word the word that she uses here can mean immediately. But it can also mean something that happens right away or it, then. It happened later. Jesus, when he says this, that he says he's going to glorify him at once, is looking ahead at the work that he's going to do on the cross and what that work means in the salvation of people and the glory of God. That's what he's doing. He's looking ahead. He has his eyes set on Gethsemane. He has his eyes set on Gabbatha, which is the word of the Bema seat that Pilate would sit on and make his judgment. He has his mind set on Golgotha, the hill of the skull where the crosses were planted in the ground. It's just around the corner. It's imminent. It's going to happen that night. That's what he means when he says at once in verse 32. Now Jesus, knowing the daily discussions with his disciples were coming quickly to an end, to an earthly end, he begins to teach them with the most tender care. And he does that by using the words... Little children in verse 33. Now that would be somewhat, that would be somewhat of a insult to Americans who are so self, uh, self-centered and think that they got everything under control. To call someone a little child would be a great insult. But this word that Jesus uses here is not an insult at all. It's a word that fathers would use of their children. A word of tenderness and compassion. A word that he would get their attention with by his love for them. And so Jesus starts his address on these commands that he is going to give them. And there are many of them throughout the next chapters. He begins by, tell, by calling them his little children. This is the only place in all of the Gospels that this tender term is used. John uses it. It's used by Paul. I want you to get the impact of it. In Galatians chapter 4, verse 19, if you'd like to turn there. <clears throat> Galatians, Ephesians, chapter 4, verse 19 of Galatians, Paul says this. Let's back up to verse 18. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you, My little children, same words that Jesus used. My little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. What's Paul saying there? Anguish of childbirth. He is saying that his heart's desire, his biggest desire, even, even it's so painful, it's like giving birth to these people, that he wants them to grow in Christ. He wants them to follow Christ and and 
Christ to be Lord over their lives. He wants them to increase in the knowledge of Christ so that they can live so as to glorify Christ. He's in anguish over this. This is what Jesus means when he says, my little children. Why do parents teach their children with such love and compassion in the first place? It is because they love their children and their desire is for them to grow up and be able to live a life that is in keeping with their values. Do you not teach your children to live like you live? Well, hopefully you do that. The disciples are his children. And he wants them to grow in their relationship with him and their knowledge of him. They are born into his family by the power of the Holy Spirit. And he wants them to lead life under his values. He will not be with them much longer. And so they need his instruction on how to follow him when he is absent. Jesus made such statements before. But to those who didn't follow him, John 7, verse 33, John 8, John 12, John 14, 16, and so on. He made these statements before. But now... The years have turned into months, and the months into, into weeks, and the weeks into days and hours, and time is flying away. It is His physical presence that will be, they will, will be gone, and they will want His physical presence and will not have it. The common utterance of that time in the early church was, oh, that Jesus were still on earth. You ever thought about that? We have questions that sometimes we can't answer and we say, oh, if, if only Jesus was here, he would tell us and that would end it all. That would be it. People miss Jesus being there. The reason for this is so that they can complete his will during their lifetime. And what is that will? It's all found in the commands that Jesus gave just before his death and the commands that he gave through his apostles after his death. In short, it's here. He's given us his instruction book on how to live life for him, how to glorify God in life. It's all found right here. Sometimes I think we think that if we had been there, if I could have only been there and heard Jesus' words out of his mouth myself. But we have a more sure word of prophecy than what was given then. Here. It's more sure. It's settled by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit interprets it for us. Now, when Jesus says, where I'm going, you cannot come, he does not mean that they can never come where he's going. That's pretty obvious because he tells Peter in verse 36 that you will follow me later. The reason for this is so that they can complete his will. That's what he wants them to do. So what is that will? It's found in verse 34 and 35. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love one for another. 
This is the first command that Jesus gives to his disciples. We could say the first command that he gives to his church, which is the makeup of all his people. All other commands rest on this one. It is the most important one of all. Now the word command in the verse literally means an authoritative order given to subordinates. That's what the word command meant, commandment means. I give you this commandment. I'm giving you... When I was in the military, we would get orders that would come down to us. And someone above us would hand us those orders and those orders would tell us what we were to do. There was no option but to obey the orders. Otherwise, you'd be held in contempt and you could receive a court-martial. This is Jesus giving orders To his disciples, to his church. This is what they were to live by. These were the rules, the precepts that they were to follow. And this charge or precept springs from love to the disciples so that they might love like he does. You know, there was a little common phrase that was um, popular a few years ago. What would Jesus do? And it's been, that thing's been used so much and it's been twisted and turned. And, but really, when you think about it in light of this passage only, that's a pretty good phrase. What would Jesus do? Well, he's told them what to do. It is as though Jesus looks at Peter and John, who were two definite different personalities. Peter is the impulsive, brash, non-tactful disciple who blurts things out before he thinks, who acts, and it often backfires on him. And John is the one who is tender and compassionate and thinks about people and what is is this going to mean for them. He's looking at Peter and John. I, I can almost see Jesus pointing to John and Peter and saying, you guys got to love one another. And if you love one another, even though you're so different, even though you're, you're like oil and water, People will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. But what does that mean? There's so many words. There's so many ways to love, but there's only one word. It has to be defined. Listen, let me, let me say this. If you are a Christian, you have, no, you have no option but to love other Christians. You have to do it. You are obligated to love them. Whether they rub you wrong or not. And many times that happens. Personality conflicts. Preferences. And we're put off and we, we can become bitter and even ugly. No, we have to love. We're commanded to do it by our Lord. <clears throat> this love that He commands is of necessity. Now listen carefully to this. This love that He commands is of necessity self-sacrificing. It's not a love of simple affection. That's involved in it. Yes, we love each other. We're, we have affection to, toward one another. It's more than that. 
It is a self-sacrificing attitude. I will give of myself to you in ways that I can. I'll sacrifice what I have or what I can do or how I feel for you. Even if you don't respond to me in the same way. It's not a you rub my back, pat my back, I'll pat yours. It's I'll pat your back whether you do mine or not. Jesus calls this love new. A new commandment. Now there are two words in the Greek language for the single English word new. And one of them means new from a standpoint of time. That which was not there before. I got a new car. Didn't have it before, now I have it. I've been saving for it, I've been working for it. Uh, it's come, it's in, it's in time. The other word means that which is new and distinctive as compared to something else. Maybe even the same thing. It's like it speaks of that which is new in nature or different from the usual or impressive. Something that, it, that attracts your attention. Superior in value. That's what Jesus is talking about here. He's not talking about love that, that is found in time. He's talking about a, a new love. A love that is different from the old one. It's, it sparkles more. You may have, I have tools in my shop of the same kind. But I always gravitate to the one that fits me the best. Even though I have others just like it. That's what he's talking about. It's the difference between the two types of love that can be seen. The Old Testament usage of the word and the New Testament usage. For example, Leviticus chapter 19. This is what God says through Moses. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Sound familiar? This is what Jesus referred to. That passage is what Jesus referred to in Matthew chapter 22. If you'd like to turn to Matthew 22, I think we have just a few minutes to do this. Well, you don't need to turn to it. Let me read it for you. Because that takes time. <clears throat> but when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked the question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is likened to it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends the whole law and prophets. This love that Jesus speaks of to his disciples in John 13 is an upgrade of that love that the law spoke of. It's a love that proceeds from the heart. Not simply from the letter of the law. You could do good things for people. But if it's not out of a heart of love that wants to honor Christ, what good is it? This is the new love that Jesus is speaking of. Paul speaks of it in Romans 13. Verse 8, Owe no one anything except to love each other. You see that? I owe you 
love. And you owe me love. You owe everyone in this room that is your brother and sister in Christ love. It's a, it's a mutual owing each other. A mutual obligation. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And then he goes through the commandments. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, shall not steal, shall not covet, or any other commandment. They're all summed up in this word. This is what Paul says. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, one last thing. One last thing, if you'll indulge me a couple of minutes purpose of carrying out this command is to show that we are the disciples of Jesus Christ. But I want you to understand that this is not just an occasional show of affection or a temporary fulfillment of a deed done from one to another. It is an ongoing practice of self-sacrifice that meets the needs of brothers and sisters in Christ when the needs arise and we know we can fulfill it. The word love is in the present tense, which means that it is a constant self-sacrifice. Listen now carefully. Forever. Now, if we were in spiritual, if we were in glorified spirit, spiritually glorified bodies, that wouldn't be hard to do, would it? Because we'd never get tired. We would have abundance of resources. But we're not in that kind of body yet. We're in a fleshly body that gets tired, that grows weak, that sometimes doesn't want. To love when it should. And that has to be overridden with the love that Jesus has given us. There are other commands in the scriptures to love unbelievers. This is not one of them. You can find those in Matthew 5 and Romans 12. Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly in both his life and death because of love. Obedience to his command is of paramount importance for the spiritual welfare of the church. And because Jesus speaks out of this, the abundance of his own heart to ours, we should do likewise. Just, just love. Love because the love of Christ is in you. Let it overflow to others. And when we do that, people see it and they, they know that something is different about us and they'll know that we belong to Christ. His glory is at stake. Listen to this quote from Tertullian who was an early church father, lived about 200 A.D. This is what he said. It is mainly the deeds of a love so noble that lead many to put a brand on us. See, they say, how they love one another. See how they are ready even to die for one another. For they themselves will rather be put to death than the other. Jesus said, there is no greater love than that a person would lay down his life for another. So I would ask, does that kind of heavenly love rule your heart this morning? The, self, the, the self-examined life is the only life worth living. So examine yourself. See if you're fulfilling the command of our Lord. And if not, start doing it today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Word of God. We thank you for the, 
for the ministry of our Lord Jesus Christ and His teaching. He's not just teaching this to a group of, of 11 disciples. He's teaching it to us. We have His Word, His living Word in this book. Help us to obey it. Cause us to love each other in ways that we have not experienced before. Sacrificing ourself for the good of the other. For this is what you did. This love you commanded them is the love that you had for us. You gave yourself for us. I pray that you would cause that to be the earmark of Bethany Bible Church. And it is in so many ways, and yet I would pray that it would increase all the more. So help us, Father, we pray. And I pray, too, that even in a, even in a message like this one, that those that are in this room who do not know you would come to know you. That they would see that they would see that they are sinners before you and that there's no possible way that you could receive them in that current state. That they would repent of their sins and turn from their sinful lives to Christ and be saved and have eternal life. Do it for the glory of your name, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.